You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. This is Tracy Jones. Our guest today is Rod Collins. Rod is the Chief Innovation Facilitator at Salt Flats. He's a keynote speaker, and he's the author on The Next Generation of Business Management. His book is titled Wiki Management, A Revolutionary New Model for a Rapidly Changing and Collaborative World. And you are going to love hearing what Rod has to say about what it takes to pay the price of leadership. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk to tremendous leaders from all over the globe in all different industries about what it took them to pay the price of leadership. And today, my guest is Rod Collins, and Rod is the Chief Innovation Facilitator at Salt Flats. I'm interested to hear about that. And a keynote speaker and author on the next generation of business management. He is the former chief operating executive of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, which under his leadership experienced its greatest five-year growth period in its 60-year history. Year after year, it set new records for financial operational performance. Rod is the author of Wiki Management, a revolutionary new model for a rapidly changing and collaborative world and a blog contributor for managementissues.com. Oh, Rod, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I I am delighted to be here. Good to see you, Tracy. Thank you so much. You sound like a futurist, like a thought leader, and I can't wait to hear hear your pearls of wisdom you're going to share with us. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. And for our listeners, I got connected with Rod. A lot of you have heard me talk about the C-Suite Network, and that's where I connected with Tremendous Rod. He's that level person that's in that peer group that I've talked so much about and had some other guests on. So Rod, without further ado, my father loved talking about leadership and had a very pragmatic but very exuberant approach to leadership. And he wrote, uh, he gave a speech called The Price of Leadership many, many years ago. And in it, he talks about the four things that you are going to actually have to be paying in order to truly be conceived or known as a true leader. Otherwise, you're just a leader in name only. And I want to unpack each of them and see from your varied and years of experience what these different words mean to you and how you would lay them out on your leadership journey so our leaders can learn something from you too. All right, you ready? Good. Let's go. Okay, good. Well, the first one my dad talked about, the first price of leadership he said is loneliness. And we were talking earlier before we started this, you know, they say it's lonely at the top, but you know, Rod, like everything else in life, loneliness can have a duality to it. And can you unpack for us what loneliness means for you as a leader, maybe where you've experienced it or some words that you can give to our listeners on how to deal with it? I come at this from a very different vantage point. Awesome. Uh, When I was asked to reflect on this, my first thought was, I wasn't lonely in leadership. And it had nothing to do with me as a personality. Uh, As you mentioned at the start of this, I have written a book called Wiki Management, a revolutionary new model for a rapidly changing collaborative world. And that new model is, I think, the emerging new model of management going forward, Mm -hmm. which is the distributed peer-to-peer network. Now, for the last century, Management has been centralized top-down hierarchies. And the old saying is, it's lonely at the top. Mm -hmm. And I do think that leaders in top-down hierarchies do experience a high degree of loneliness because their fundamental source of power comes from being in charge. And it is expected, and their fundamental activity is that they are expected to direct things. Mm -hmm. Another thing about hierarchies is they leverage the individual intelligence of the people at the top. And the basic theory is that organizations are smartest 
when the smartest people at the top direct the work of, of everybody else, and then the whole organization would, is smarter than it otherwise would be if people were left to their devices. Well, in the model that I follow, that paradigm is completely turned on its head. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a little background on why I didn't experience loneliness as a leader. In the mid-1990s, after a 15-year career as the general auditor for the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, I was tasked with taking over the operations. And I was also tasked with turning it around. It had sustained about two decades of low growth, low performance. I said to my boss, I'm going to do very different things. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't care what you do, turn this around. And so the insight that we had is just for a little background for our listeners. Many people don't realize Blue Cross Blue Shield is not a one organization. It's actually a federation of 39 separate organizations. And the federal employee program that I worked for when I left, it was a $19 billion operation. And it was an alliance of the 39 separate organizations to deliver seamless health insurance to four and a half million federal employees and their family members around the world. And as I looked at why is it we've had so much trouble sustaining the growth we wanted and the operational performance we wanted, the insight was we lead this organization like it's a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. We're barking out directives from Washington, D.C. is where the, the headquarters was. What if we, when I looked at this and said, we're not a hierarchy, we're a network. And what if we were to learn to lead this as a network? And there are no books on that. And I realized we let it as a hierarchy because that's all you're taught. That's the only method people knew. And so we ventured out and became pathfinders. And over the next 10 years, successfully put in place a network management model. Now, leadership in a network management model is very different. Because one of the things that happens when you shift from a hierarchy to a network is the locus of power shifts. Power is not about being in charge. It's about mm-hmm. being connected. Mm-hmm. And so our job as leaders was to increase the connectivity among all of the various organizations participating and to learn how to herd cats. The other thing we recognize is we had to lead by consensus. And so through some very innovative ways of bringing people together, which is really the essence of the work that I do today as an innovation facilitator, we were very successful in building this network. But what it meant is, as the leader, my job wasn't to direct the activities. My job was to facilitate the container in which the direction would be shaped, to come up with processes where we could tap into the collective intelligence of all of our people. I wish we had this in our world today. It's the complete opposite of the tribal divisions we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. I have some appreciation for it because unlike the two tribes we have now in the United States today, we have 39 different tribes. And so in forming them into an effective network, we had to find a way to call out the best of everyone's thinking. And maybe later in another point in the interview, we could go into that in more detail if it's helpful. But suffice it to say, I personally went through a significant paradigm shift in what leadership meant. And it meant not that I had to give the directions, but that I had to make sure that the right direction was found, was discovered. And in the process of doing this by involving people in very creative, very innovative ways that we could accomplish very fast and with surety, we really tapped into two key attributes that are generally missing in most organizations. And I think that the fact that these are missing drives the traditional loneliness 
that executives feel in in top-down organizations. We got very good at aggregating and leveraging our own collective intelligence. And in the process of doing that, we got very good at putting together, collating a shared understanding. And the shared understanding became a great driver of consistency in terms of performance. Mm -hmm. Now, Collective intelligence wasn't something we were aware of. It's something we discovered. Mm -hmm. Once we began to focus on, we've got to get people's fingerprints on what we're going to do. We're not going to be the in-charge people. And that doesn't mean that you're not engaged in leadership. I actually think it takes a higher set of skills to be this type of leader. Sure. Um, Once in the process of setting up the meeting dynamics that helped us come forward, we stumbled into this phenomenon of collective intelligence. And I believe the most untapped resource in the typical organization is the collective intelligence of its own people. With organizations lack of the processes to tap into it, hierarchies are designed not to tap into it. They're designed to leverage the intelligence of the people at the top. But once you have this asset, what you realize is that collective intelligence is a higher intelligence than, than the capacity of any single human brain. Mm-hmm. So it's a higher level of intelligence. And once that is formulated, the other thing that we found is people bought into it very, very rapidly because they helped create it. And now processes brought together the best of everyone's thinking so that the apparent dissonance in in differing points of view went away when we were able to combine ideas into more optimally intelligent solutions. Mm-hmm. And the byproduct of this is an incredible shared understanding. So when there is a shared understanding, you're not lonely at the top. You are surrounded by an incredible group of powerful people at the core. Mm -hmm. And so leaders should not be at the top. That's what hierarchies do. Leaders need to be at the core. But the core isn't about amplifying themselves. The core is about optimizing the activity of the whole organization. So you're tapping into everyone's intelligence. And I have to say, the most fun I had in my executive career were the last 10 years where we did this. It worked so well after leading the operations for five years. The last five years, I was promoted to the chief executive of the business. And it is a very, very different way of leading But I have to say it was a less stressful way because by being able to tap into this larger intelligence, I mean, I really felt like I had an incredible competitive advantage because we have somehow stumbled onto a way to tap into this great asset. And by the end of it, my mindset at the end was, why would I ever substitute my own intelligence for the collective intelligence of this organization. that, And we were able to put that together. The, the sessions generally had about 40 to 50 people in them. Because you need, you need that much to tap into it. Oh, sure. Well, it's and, the, old, yeah. the Ken Blanchard quote, none of us is as smart as all of us, you know, yes. kind of thing. Now, you were in the organization. Then they said, hey, we would like you. We see there's issues here. Then we would like you to take it. Is that yeah. correct? Or did you come in from the outside just out of curiosity? No, no, I was internal. I, I had been okay. uh, for 15 years. I was the general auditor of the program. Okay. So you kind of saw this stuff going on and you mm-hmm. saw that it, you know, the old army be all that you can be. You saw that it wasn't being all that it could be, but there was leadership in there though, that kind of sensed this dissonance, but it was okay. Right. Until somebody above you finally said, listen, we got to make a change. Is that, is that kind of the way it happened? 
Well, the way it happened is we needed to turn the business around. Okay. So and, it got to the point. Okay. So you yeah. were in a status of, hey, we can't afford to do this, you know, anymore type thing. Yeah. And okay. I think they were, wanted to try something different. I mean, I, I did auditing different. I mean, one of the things we did is when I led the audit group, I thought I looked around and I said, you know, we go out there and we got very smart auditors who go out and they have to spend perhaps three or four weeks on a site. And I know these people know in the first day what's wrong and what needs to be done, especially very seasoned veterans one. Yes. So they're going to spend three to four weeks coming up with the documentation for what they already knew. And one of the things we were doing is in addition to traditional audits, we supplemented it with something I had come across. And and I don't remember who the authors of this were, and so I can't give them attribution, but something that was known as control self-assessment. But what it was is we went out and we invested, we, we bought all these machines where people could, you know, could vote anonymously. And in the first half day, we asked the people, where are all the issues here? And we were able to get that. And so these control self-assessments could be done in, nice. in three days. Okay. Because when you presented the findings, it wasn't, we found this on you. Right. It was your own people identified it. And okay. so it was an early stumbling into this phenomenon, if you will. Wow. That is huge. Yeah. Because I mean, I could see you were in it, so you saw it, but then you had a hierarchy that was evolved enough to give you the reins to change it and actually meet it and back you. And then you had this controlled self-assessment where people came up with the issues themselves. Yeah. And one of the problems with hierarchies, it tends to pit people against each other. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. They're they're naturally competitive environments because everybody is trying to go up the pyramid. One of the things that happens in a network structure is it naturally engenders collaboration. Mm Mm-hmm. And so everybody is saying, you know, we want to be more collaborative. But to me, the test is, as long as you remain a top-down hierarchy, you really don't need it. It works against that. Yeah. If you really want to be a collaborative organization, then, you know, look at some of the technology companies. If you, I've had the opportunity, for example, to walk into Zappos and actually walk around their place. It's unlike any office you've ever seen. A lot of people would say this isn't an office at all. Mm And yet they're a highly effective organization. Collaboration is really built into their DNA. Another company is, uh, I think our audience would be surprised, they know its products well, is W.O. Gordon Associates, the makers of Gore-Tex. And when I do public speaking on this, I, I ask the audience, would you be surprised to learn that there is a company that has been around for 60 years, it's made a profit, and every year it's put its products in the market, It's a $3 billion enterprise, has 10,000 people in 30 countries around the world, and nobody has the authority to make an assignment. It has no bosses. It's a completely self-organized company. Now, I mentioned this not to say that our leaders should adopt this model. Mm -hmm. There are, I did, in doing the research for Wiki Management, I did come across several organizations that have no supervisors, but every one of them was born that way at birth. Okay. I pointed, I pointed out to people to know it is a model that works. And for over 60 years, this is how W.L. Gorn Associates has worked. The world's leading tomato processor is self-organized. It's been around since the mm. mid-1970s. Now, companies like Google, for example, or Amazon, they do have supervisors. And so you can have, and anybody who's come from a legacy of supervisory management, you don't, I would not recommend they, they adopt these other models. We just need to know they're there because they do work. 
And when leaders shift and understand I'm leading a network and not a hierarchy, which I think will become critical because Mm -hmm. I don't think legacy companies will be able to compete against the technology companies who are taking over more and more of the landscape space. And what most business leaders don't recognize is one of the big competitive advantages they have is they're not designed as hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And so they are able, they are naturally designed for innovation. Because in networks, anybody can generate ideas. Not everybody gets money. Money's got to be earned. Right. I love it. And ideas, there are no prohibitions against thinking. Nobody will be fired because they have an idea that is doesn't comport with what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in a network, you want ideas that are not what we're doing today, because we'd rather that come from inside our organization than have somebody outside come up with a new business and product model that all of a sudden gives us the new version of the Kodak moment. And Kodak, if they were designed as a network and it encouraged the proliferation of the new ideas that their engineers had, and maybe people would be surprised to learn Kodak actually invented the digital camera, Mm -hmm. but they put it aside because they were in the film business. They should have invented the iPhone. And so networks is not just a, a way in which you don't have to be lonely. It's a way in which your organization can move fast. It can keep up with the new competition and it can keep you as a sustainable entity because the only competitive advantage today is not about efficiency. It's about adaptability. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do that, you need to design an organization where leadership is a core. It's not the top of a pyramid. I love it. I love it. Excellent. All right. Well, that is certainly, I've jotted down notes here. I love that. And is there like a school of leadership thought that you would compare this to? You know, everybody has the big deal now with servant leadership. I and my leadership studies have studied the power of followership. I'm a Robert Kelly girl, all about critical thinking and all in engagement. So kind of what you're talking about, the reverse the lens on leadership. And it's really 80% of the success of an organization is followers. Is there something that you've seen that's kind of emerging in that field? I know you said adaptive leadership. That made me think of like servant leadership but kind of adaptive leadership? What are you thinking? This is consistent. I do think that that leadership in the future is aligned with what's been called servant leadership. I like to call it facilitative leadership. Okay. I also think too that somebody who had insight into this was Jim Collins. I think most of our audience have probably read the book, Good to Great. Mm -hmm. And they will remember that Jim Collins talked about level five leadership. As a matter of fact, he writes in the book that one of the things he went into this study with is we're not going to talk about leadership. We're not going to say that. We're going to look at the the activities, the dynamics, and where he was coming from, you know, it's not just get good intentions. Collins was looking for operational criteria. It was the students who worked with him who just badgered him until he gave in, who said, you can't ignore it. It was the only factor that was present in all 11 organizations. They had different type of leaders. And the, the, the level five leader is consistent with this notion of servant leader or facilitative leader. And this is not weak leadership. No. And what Collins called it was humble will. Mm-hmm. And these people had a sense of humility about them. They understood that the world didn't begin and end with them. They understood that really the world began and end with all the people who were in their organization. But they were very strong-willed. 
you know, they set an environment in which we're going to succeed. What do you need me to do to get things out of the way? It's that type of strength that is necessary. It's an interpersonal strength as opposed to a dominant strength. And you want this interpersonal strength to permeate throughout your organization. Because if the interpersonal ties are incredibly connected, now you're experiencing the power of connectivity, which is what drives networks. Mm-hmm. And so th- this, this is a bit of a leadership shift. The other thing Collins pointed out is most boards anti-select the very leaders who would be the best leaders. Now, because- I have found that on every board I've been on. I saw the same thing. I'm like, this is the strangest phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Because these are not people who come in and take over the room. That's not, they don't see that as strength. Okay. As a matter of fact, they are people who lead by listening. Mm-hmm. They, they do a lot of listening. They're focused on listening and understanding. Mm-hmm. And this notion of understanding is critical because that's the leader's main job is not to give direction. The leader's job is to cultivate the largest sense of shared understanding that they can throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, people really can make decisions that you're very comfortable with at the lowest levels, close to people and close to processes. Mm-hmm. Delegation without shared understanding is just a formula for chaos. Well, yeah, you got that right. All right. So next we talk about, thank you for unpacking loneliness. And that was, I love talking leadership theory and and, uh, application, especially when you're coming up with something new. Now, the next thing my dad talked about was weariness. And again, like everything else, all different kinds of weariness. But how do you, Ron, how do you see the best leaders or the best organizations battle weariness and stay replenished or refreshed? How do you balance that? Well, this is another interesting aspect. And I would ask our audience to think about this. Again, if you're in a top-down hierarchy, you're in a battle. I think oftentimes the most dysfunctional team in the typical organization, and whenever I say this, I get a lot of knowing nods and knowing smiles, is the senior leadership group. Why? They're all competing with each other to be the CEO. They're withholding information from each other. Mm -hmm. They're making each other look bad so that they can look good. Mm -hmm. That is what weariness looks like. If you have to go in every day and know I am going to battle, not just with a market, but I'm going to battle with about nine or 10 other people, any one of whom may try and make me look bad today in the meeting so that they can look good. That's weariness. And it's also unnecessary. And quite frankly, it's an experience I didn't have as a leader. Because when you are leading a collaborative network, you're going in every day with nine or 10 people who are really focused on how can we help each other so that we can win in the marketplace. Where the battle should take place is not inside the organization. It's out in the marketplace. Right, right. And one of the disciplines that drove this was every two weeks, we went off site. I believe that strategy sessions was not something you held once a year. It's something you did once every two weeks. Okay. Because one of the the products of the dysfunctionality among leadership teams is if they're not working together, then we really have not articulated strategy at the level we need. One of my favorite exercises when I do strategic retreats is to pass out two post-it notes. And I tell the the senior leadership team, on the first post-it note, I want you to put three numbers that add up to 100. 
and you're going to rate them as follows. How much time do you spend on strategy? How much time do you spend on operations? And how much time do you spend on people? And I collect those. Now I say with the second post-it note, write down three numbers that add up to 100. How much time should you spend on strategy? How much time should you spend on operations? How much time should you spend on people? Mm-hmm. And I get those back. And then I allay them and I pick the median one. And it is almost universal with any group I've worked with. The first set of answers, 10% on strategy, 80% on operations, 10% on people. Mm -hmm. Second set, I should be spending 40% on strategy. I should be spending 20% on operations. And I should be spending 40% on people. Yeah. What I draw their attention to is you got 80% of your time on operations. You got 20% of your time should be. Why do we have a 60-point gap? And who's doing strategy around here? Right. You're only spending 10% of your time on that. Right. Right. And so, and everything, if you are in a hierarchy, okay, and everything flows down from that, well, there's no strategy flowing down. So people don't have really context. And what they see is that leadership team, their experiences, they're all warring with each other. Mm -hmm. Well, the discipline that I wanted is we went literally off-site one day every two weeks because we spent that day on strategy. We could It was off-limits to talk about any operational problem we had. Okay. We had, we had separate meetings in which we handled that as a leadership team. Mm-hmm. But I wanted this time dedicated to strategy and, it caught, and, and to have in-depth discussions because in-depth discussions about the business is what forms the relationship stuff that drives the collaboration. And the other thing I did with the team was to say, none of you can make a unilateral decision about your area that affects anybody else. So for example, I would look at the marketing executive and say, I'm going to hold you individual account- accountable for achieving our marketing goals, but you are not, you do not have the unilateral authority to make a marketing decision that you have not run by this team. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if what you're going to market Do we have the systems built to do that? Can our operations deliver that? And so I wanted us thinking about strategy holistically. Too often, what you have is individual silos that are making decisions. Right. You know, they don't necessarily fit each other. And so that's what weariness is about. Well, the esprit de corps that we developed in this senior leadership team, I mean, it was I went into that meeting with high energy. I had a wonderful group of people with whom I worked. And I think that was one of the advantages I had is by the time I became the chief executive, we had developed this milieu of collaboration and we really liked getting together. And we really had spirited conversations, but never heated conversations. We had people building off of each other's ideas. We had people looking out for each other because we were all focused on winning in the marketplace. This type of discipline is necessary and it amplifies out to the entire organization. When the senior leadership team is cohesive, is focused on strategy. Strategy is the greatest gift that the senior leadership team can give to the operational organization. Because once they have that, they know how to handle the operations. Mm -hmm. The reason that the typical leader spends so much time in operations is there is no shared understanding. And so the only way we can find an answer is to run it up the totem pole. And if you're focused on on developing an in-depth understanding of strategy, and then you're conveying that to the rest of the staff, and you're allowing them also to 
ask questions. It's what we wanted. And sometimes, you know, in between two weeks, we would come back and somebody would say, you know, based on what we talked about two weeks ago, I was talking with my staff and they came up with a really good question. And so we had a process in which that really good question took no more than two weeks to get addressed. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes those really good questions never get addressed. It's like, well, that's a good point, but you know, the decision's been made and we got to keep going. Right. As the world's changing, you need these, you know, these types. I I can't overemphasize the importance of this. I do want to just add one thing. If anybody listening to this admires the work that Alan Mulally did with the Ford Motor Company, this is exactly what Alan did. Once a week, he got his executive team together and he would tell you, and I've, I've seen this in writing, that he called his meeting, it had a, a kind of a neutral title. He called it a business process review, if I recall right. But it really was this time, it was this, this very senior leadership meeting where he was focused on how they could collaborate with each other. Mm. And that is what drove the turnaround. I remember reading in the book on this, he was given carte blanche to fire anybody he wanted to fire. And he kept telling the board members, I don't think I'm going to need to fire anybody. And they're looking at him, we're losing, I I think it was something like $16 billion a year. I mean, feel free to do what you need to do. He says, oh, I'll feel that freedom, but I'm not sure I'm going to need to fire anybody. Uh And he didn't fire a single leader. Two left on their own because, you know, they, they had philosophical differences with the way he was approaching things. Sure. But the vast majority stayed. And I think it's very clear that they became a very cohesive team. And the, the turnaround of Ford is very well documented. Mm, I love it. I love it. Can and, we and, yeah. and, and anybody operating like this, boy, you don't feel weary. You feel energetic. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Okay. So loneliness, weariness, the next term he used was called abandonment. And my father would always say that leaders need to think about what they ought and need to focus on and not what they like and want to. So his terminology for abandonment was really focus or clarity. But can you, with your leadership paradigm you're unpacking, can you unpack for us? How does the group, I know we've got this collective thing, but how does the collective come to a singular point of, okay, but this is where we need to go. Can you unpack that for us? Abandonment, I think, has two dimensions. Uh-huh. And the first is, do I feel abandoned? Okay. And we won't spend much time on that because if you're lonely and you're weary, it's just a matter of time before you're going to feel sure. abandoned. Does right. anybody care? Okay. Right. And so I don't think we need to talk any more on that because I, you know, I think anybody who's working in this network type of approach feels a lot of company and a lot of support and it comes naturally. But the abandonment that really matters is when do we need to abandon what we've been doing that's made us successful so far? And organizations have great difficulty with that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I liked about some of the technology companies I studied when I wrote Wiki Management, this sense of we have got to be open to abandon what's making us successful is baked into their DNA. Mm-hmm. And so some of these companies, for example, when they put a successful product into the marketplace, would, would put together another team and say, your job is to kill what we just put out there. Because they know in this rapidly changing, digitally connected world with new possibilities for business and product models, somebody's going to do it. And so they set things up that it isn't going to be done to us we're going to do it to ourselves. It's something that in the old management paradigm was called cannibalism. And that was that you never want to cannibalize your own products. That thinking is gone. If you don't cannibalize your own products, Mm. somebody else will. 
The idea that you can sustain a business or product model for 30 or 40 years, which was possible in the late 20th century, is it's no longer so. You know, just think about it. A mere 13 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. All right. We were running around with flip phones and Blackberries. We now take that for granted. Some new tech, and, and over the next decade, we're going to see an even larger technological revolution because the Internet of Things will be more transformative than the Internet. It will create new possibilities for business and product models that we can only imagine now that will come at us faster than, than we realize. Mm-hmm. And so this is one more reason why networks do a better job of abandoning things. So let me give you an example of a company that's very well designed for abandoning what doesn't work. And it's a company I talked about before, W.L. Gorn Associates. When there are no bosses, okay, so you don't have a central group formulating strategy, how do you decide what you do and how do you decide what you stop doing? Well, they have a very simple rubric. When you get enough people to come to the meeting around a new idea, well, you start doing it and you keep working on it as long as it's working. And when do you stop doing something? When people stop showing up to the meetings because in their performance system, which is based on collective intelligence. And so another thing about a network is don't have people reviewed by a single person, have them reviewed by the people whom they need to collaborate for you as a leader to succeed. Mm-hmm. So that they see all of those people, not as competitors, but as customers. Nice. And so if you drive this, so this is what Gore set up. I mean, when in 1958, when he sets this up, he realizes if I'm not going to have supervisors, well, how do I get people to do more work rather than less work and the right work rather than the wrong work? So he set in place a simple appraisal process where everybody's evaluated by 20 people and everybody evaluates by 20 people. And that keeps people focused on those two things. Because at the end of the year, I need those 20 people to see me doing more rather than less work Mm. and working on the right things and not the wrong things. Right. And so they're able to drop projects that, that are going nowhere. Right. In a hierarchy, when your whole identity is built around a project that is, that really is dying, but you can't admit it because if I do, then I'm designating myself as a failure. That's a terrible dynamic to have in an organization when the technology companies are operating from the mindset that, well, we're going to fail. Let's do it as early as we possibly can. And so, you know, you hear this thing fail, fail early. Uh, fail often. Yeah. Fail often. And I know that's not palatable to our audience. So I ask them to look at it this way. Learn early and learn often. Yeah. Because that's what you're really doing. And you put in place procedures like, and two, it's another company that's designed like, more like a network. They actually have a monetary award, as I, I read somewhere, where they actually pay people money for the best failure of the year. And the best failure of the year was something from which we learned a tremendous amount and we circulated it all across the organization so other people wouldn't make the same mistake. Right. High failures, then other people down the road may make the similar failure. And if we're not letting people know it didn't work. So you don't want to fail big. And one of my favorite lines is, if you don't want the big failure, tolerate the small failures. If you can't tolerate the small failures, be prepared for the big failure, especially in these rapidly changing times. Yes, I love that. All right, so you hit a little bit on it too. The last price is is vision. Loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. And my father always said vision is just, and I love how you said that, you show up for a meeting, seeing what needs to be done and doing it. 
And I love how you said the team coalesces and then when it's done, people, it's done. So can you share with me what your idea of vision is in leading a, a networking or a highly collaborative workplace? Vision is critical. Okay. It is critical. And everybody has to know what the vision mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And vision needs to be literally seeable. All right. So let me talk about a couple dimensions here. Vision isn't something that is only understood in the C-suite. And I would guess that those who are limiting vision to the C-suite would be surprised to find they don't have vision. Mm-hmm. Because if vision's limited to the C-suite, I'm willing to bet you that if you walked into a C-suite meeting, said everybody take out a blank sheet of paper, write down what the vision of this company is. If you've got 10 people, you'll have 10 different answers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Vision is not something that are words on a sheet of paper. Visions are not handed out to people. Visions are something that people co-create and experience. And I think it happens in several ways. Number one, I, I talked earlier before, the leader's job is not to give directions, to expect compliance. The leader's job is to cultivate and grow. And this is hard work, not easy work. It requires strong leadership, is to grow the broadest shared understanding that you possibly can across your organization. That means several things. One, you do want to aggregate and leverage your collective intelligence. You do want people's fingerprints over ideas. That doesn't mean that the group is making decisions. The senior leaders should still make the decisions where you do, you know, and most of the networks, that's true. And people are fine with that. As a matter of fact, most people in organizations, they don't want to make the decisions. They want the leaders doing that. What they want is you're making decisions because you have, you've heard everything we've had to say and you've been exposed to a broad base of ideas so that your decisions are as intelligent as they can be. Mm -hmm. And, and I, my experience is, and when people express their voices, they didn't necessarily say, because I said so, it must be done. They're happy. They know that, you know, first of all, if you hear all the voices, not everything can be done. What they want to know is you considered it. And in considering it, you really, you did that honestly. And then people will get behind whatever the group does. I saw that over and over and over again. They were thankful that they were heard. And often their experience is, well, you know, about, about 60, 70% of the time, my idea does go forward. And 30 or 40%, it doesn't. But I understand why. And I can get behind that. That's what shared understanding, you know, begins to look like. Right. And another thing is visions should always be reflected in metrics. If you haven't put your vision in metrics, then it's not being reinforced. Okay. Now, when I was with Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, everybody knew what was important in our organization if you walked off our elevators. Because I think one of the most important things that business leaders need to do is come up with the top four performance drivers for your business. Okay. Don't necessarily create it in the C-suite. Involve a lot of people in defining what they are, because here's the thing. None of those numbers are in your financials. Most managers are managing to and by the financials. And the problem with that is their outcome measures, which means their scores you get when the game is over. You want to get leading indicators. You want to find the four most important leading indicators that correlate with the outcome measures. And so I'll say, yes, you hold executives accountable for outcome measures, for performance, but they're lousy management tools. They're performance tools. 
the management tools, which is you're able to affect to the extent to which you'll succeed or which you'll fail, find the leading indicators. Now, once you have those, one of the things I'd like to do is, all right, take that leading indicator and don't come up with a single metric, but come up with, with a spectrum of metrics. What's threshold? What should you be accomplishing 100% of the time? This leading indicator should never go below this level. What's target? About 70% of the time, you should be able to hit your target, 100% your threshold, and then have a stretch. And that's something that only has about a 10% probability of happening. All right. Mm -hmm. If you're meeting all your stretch goals, you don't have stretch goals. You've got target goals. Right. Okay. okay. True stretch, you know, and, and you do want true stretch goals and you reward people for the target. Don't set up stretch goals and then subtly convey to people, well, you know, you could do better. No, stretch goals are really incredible. When you accomplish them, they mean something. You did land, you know, a person on the moon. It's that, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But most times we should be aiming for targets and rewarding people appropriately. But by having that stretch there and with this understanding, you're getting people focused to do the very best you can. And when you have these measures, what we did is we color-coded them so that blue meant we were at stretch and green meant that we were approaching target. Yellow was threshold and red was we weren't meeting threshold. Mm. And color coding is important because people respond to colors more quickly than respond to numbers. Mm -hmm. They can just glaze over with numbers. But if they were to walk off our elevator and see all of these measures were red, I mean, you wouldn't have to call any meeting. People would would start acting on their own than if they have the shared understanding. So our people were constantly focused on, we want blue and we want green. Mm -hmm. We don't want yellow. We don't want red. And if we get yellow, we're going to get acting. Right. And I wanted everyone who walked off the elevator without being told by a supervisor, whether we were winning or losing in the marketplace. And those key indicators oftentimes reflect and are driving what the vision of the business is, what it is you want to create in the marketplace. And at least one of those measures should be some form of a customer measure. Because mm -hmm. if we're not focused on customers, then we really are navel-gazing inside an organization. We want to compete in the marketplace, not in the organization. I love it. I love it. Excellent. Okay. So we've gone through loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. And Rod, anything else from a, an overarching leadership? You've unpacked an awful lot, but anything else you want to share with our, our leaders that are listening to you right now? Yes. Have the courage to think differently because over the next decade, we are likely to see more change than we have in the last 25 years. Okay. Every one of our listeners today has experienced the impact of the internet and knows how that has changed everything. We don't have to convince our listeners of that. What I'd like our listeners to focus in on is the internet of things will connect every person and everything into a single global network over the next decade. Mm -hmm. It will not require people to voluntarily go to a computer or a mobile device to enter information. It will be collecting information 24 seven 365. And it's going to create the opportunity for new business, new product models. Now, let me give a concrete example so we can relate to what that means. Let's think the car industry, because I think the executives in the car industry are moving down this path. They understand the internet of things is coming. 30 years ago, if you told me that there was going to be driverless cars, I would say not in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. 
There are at least a million driverless cars on the road today. And I think all of our listeners understand that sometime in our lifetime, we are going to see predominantly driverless cars, but we're thinking in all paradigms. And when we think of driverless cars, what we expect is someday I'll own a car. It's going to have a computer that will drive the car just like I do, only it'll be safer because it never falls asleep, never gets drunk, never gets distracted. And the first generation of driverless cars will look like that. But the Internet of Things will do a complete paradigm shift. And this is another example of collective intelligence and understanding how collective intelligence gets us beyond the limitations of the single human brain which is where leadership has been in the past. Leadership needs to get beyond the single capacity of single human brain. Driverless cars will operate like this. Driverless cars will be nothing but collections of sensors. All those sensors will be interconnected. And when they are, it will not be a single car navigating. It will be a network of all the cars on the planet operating in real time. In other words, every car Every driverless car will be driving with the full knowledge of what every other car in the planet is doing hmm. because the artificial intelligence systems will be collective intelligence systems. If you think about now, if our audience is skeptical, we already have an application of this. The next time you get in the car and put in Google Maps where you want to go, it's able to give you this incredibly high quality real-time information. Why? because it knows through the mobile phone, the flow of traffic mm -hmm. of every car in the world connected, it's already operating. And so I'll leave our audience with this little quote from William Gibson, a science fiction writer. You need to recognize the future is already here. It's not evenly distributed. Get out of the past, learn how to lead a network because the world with the impact of the network is, it is fundamentally transforming our basic forms of social organization from centralized top-down hierarchies to distributed peer-to-peer -peer networks. That is the organizational model of the future. It will transform organizations. It will transform the way we do businesses and transform the way we do products. Those leaders who understand that will succeed. Those who don't will have their own version of the Kodak moment. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. I love it. I love it. Well, Rod, where can people get in touch with you? What's the best way for people to find you? Best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I've got a pretty active presence there. I, I wind up repurposing blogs there. If they want to learn more about this model we've talked about, yeah. uh, it's all spelled out in the book, Wiki Management. And it's built around 50 specific practices that the different organizations I study use. Awesome. Because if we can't convert this into practices, right. Then, just theory. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's just theory. It, yeah. We're talking, this needs to be practice and it is a different form of practice. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to it. Excellent, Rod. Well, thank you so much. And again, we'll put the links, we'll put the books and, and on your connections with LinkedIn on there. I know we're connected, but thank you so much. Incredibly insightful, gave me much to chew on. Even um, the, the collective hive of making sure everybody's all in that collective hive because as leaders, you know, like you said, we got to make sure everybody's, everybody's in it. I just, mm -hmm. I love that. Yep. Excellent. All right, Ron. Well, thank you so much to our leaders out there listening. I hope you get some great insights about what it takes to pay the price of leadership. And thank you so much for being our part of our tremendous tribe. If you like what you heard, please hit the like button. Make sure you hit the subscribe button too. And we'd be honored if you would do us the favor of a five-star review. So thank you all tremendous leaders out there. Thanks for listening and have a tremendous rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. 
If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.